we are. Um, I know some of you were doubting, but we did make it through Romans chapter 8. And uh, we are jumping into Romans chapter 9 this morning. And, and, I, and I wonder as you're reading uh, along with us, hopefully, or if you've been with us as we've been going through Romans chapter 8, uh, the question I think that comes to our mind would be, what do you expect comes next? After the great eight, the great Romans chapter eight. What would you expect comes next? I mean, if you even back up a little bit more and think about the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, where Paul has taken us through just this this wonderful uh, letter so far in which he talks about our our guilt and our sin and our helplessness. And then he brings in Jesus, our hope. And he doesn't leave us there. Then he goes in and talks about our sanctification, how we can be made more like him. And then in the great chapter eight, talks about our security. And we ended last week with the declaration that we need to hold on to, that nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what would you expect comes next? I think somewhat we expect to jump right into what is Romans chapter 12, right? Therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then we march through four great chapters of Christian living. But Paul doesn't do this. Paul doesn't go where we would expect him to go. Instead, we get Romans chapters 9 through 11 Romans 8 is the greatest chapter, I think, in this book. And Romans 9 through 11 are some of the most debated and controversial chapters. And so we're going to have a really short sermon this week. And Gary's going to take it. No, I I was joking with Gary. They were asking me how far I would get this morning. I said, I'm going through all three chapters, man. (laughs) We're going to blaze through it. No, we're going to. We're going to take our time, but because one of the things that I hope you get this morning is that what's happening here in Romans chapter 9 through 11, this is not a parenthesis. This is Paul does that sometimes. This is not Paul hitting the pause button and talking about something then hitting the unpause button and going forward. But what we get in Romans chapters 9 through 11 is wonderful, deep truths about who God is. Now, there are some controversial things that we will talk about. We will talk about. Uh, what, it, what does Paul mean by election? What is the fate of ethnic Israel? Paul addresses those things. It's in the text. We're going to talk about those things. But I want you to understand this morning as we go, as we delve into this, Paul sets it up in the first five verses of where he's going and what he wants us to know. And all of this is building around the theme of the trustworthiness of God. And so let's jump in this morning to these verses and... Um, I love, I love these, the verses we're going to cover, 1 through 5 this morning. I, I just love these. and um, uh, th- So tempting to get sidetracked in these verses. And, and I just want to say from the outset that as we, as we delve into this, you know, that it's one of my prayers every time I read these verses that, that my passion um, and my heart grows more like the Apostle Paul's heart and Paul's passion. I mean, what, what, you will, what you see, what you will hear this morning is Paul's love just coming through his, his pen. And, and I pray that as we, as we look at these verses, that I hope that you're praying the same way, that God will 
create in you, continue to create in you a love and a passion for your neighbor like Paul has for his. And so let's jump in and look at verse one. We're going to walk through and then we're going to uh, I'm going to show you why, why these, why this here, why, why these three chapters here. And I hope that by, by the time we walk away that you understand why here. And then as we jump into the weeks and months ahead in Romans chapters nine through eleven, that that it'll help us uh, in, in making sense of what Paul has for us, what the Lord has to us through Paul. So the first thing I want you to see in verse one, notice that Paul has three statements here. Uh, and and uh, I kind of view this like if you have kids um, and your, your kids are telling you something like this, you know, Dad, I'm hungry. Well, that can mean a lot of things. My kids know that if they really want to get my attention, they'll say, Dad, I'm really, really, really hungry. <laughs> a Silas just this morning said, Dad, I have to go to the restroom. Okay. Then he turned around and said, No, Dad, I really, really, really have to go to the restroom. So, okay, you can go. Paul here is repeating three times this statement, and I want you to see, real easy for us to see, so just real quickly, I want you to see what he's saying. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm telling the truth in Christ, meaning either as a Christian, I want you to know that I'm telling the truth, or um, as, as Christ searches me, Christ knows that I'm telling the truth to you and what I'm getting ready to say. If that weren't enough, and Paul did not think that it was, he says, I am not lying. And then thirdly, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit is testifying with my spirit that what I'm getting ready to tell you is true. Paul is saying, pay attention. This means a lot to me. This is true. And what he is saying is, is true, we find in verses 2 and 3. He says, here's the truth. Here's, here's what's in my soul. I want to reveal my soul to you right here. And I want you to, to know how I feel. And what he says is, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I tell you the truth. I'm not lying. Christ as my witness. The Holy Spirit bears with my conscience. I'm telling you the truth here. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And, and then Paul doubles down. Goes a, a, a step. I don't even want to say further. I'm just just takes this huge giant thing to let us know what he's feeling. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ. That this is how deeply he feels about this, that if it were possible, it's not. <laughs> if it were possible that he could wish himself accursed, separated from Christ. And for what reason? For what reason? For the sake of my brethren and my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are the Israelites. And so what brings him to this place is as he looks at the Israelites and their rejection of the Messiah, it pains him deeply. And he wants us to know this. 
And this is a huge problem for Paul. It's a huge problem for Paul that the Israelites are rejecting Jesus, are rejecting the Messiah, and it's troublesome for two reasons. The second one is the most important one. I want you to hear me say that. The second reason that I will get to in a few minutes is the most important. And I don't want us to lose sight of of what Paul says there because it's the key, I think, to interpreting the, the rest of this passage, the rest of the three chapters. However, we can't ignore the first one. The first thing we see, the reason that this troubles Paul, is that it's, it's very personal to him. Look at the words he uses when he describes the Israelites. My brethren. My kinsmen, according to the flesh. These were his people. That's a country saying, right? If you're not from around here, you won't understand that. But my people means... My family, my kind of people. He uses these pronouns. Paul described himself in in the scriptures as what? A Hebrew of Hebrews. His neighbors, his family, his friends, his, his heritage was with ethnic Israelites. His teachers were who? Jews. If he had students, who were they? Jews. And his heart is breaking. His heart is breaking because these people have rejected the Messiah. You know, I, I, as I was thinking about this, one of the things that so often hear from uh, missionaries, native missionaries, that meaning uh, if, if we had someone from Africa who was an African uh, who's a missionary who was coming to the United States to gain garner support? Um, it's it's often that they you, you say a, a phrase that I will often say to them is how do you like being in America? <laughs> and without a without fail, most of them will say this. Well, I you know I enjoy meeting other believers and I I enjoy the fellowship here, but my heart is still in Africa. That, that what they see, they see the job to do. They, they see the burden of, of what they are called to. And, and Paul, Paul is, as he's here, his heart is with his people. I, I think we also see that Paul, in opening up this chapter, again, this isn't the main thing, but I do want to take note of this because I think it's important, and I think we see him doing this all throughout Romans, is that I, I think Paul wants to make sure that he's not misunderstood. And you say, well, how could Paul... Well, Paul is misunderstood a lot. <laughs> but, but particularly here, I, I think he doesn't want to be misunderstood. And he wants, he wants the church at Rome to know that he loves his people. Let's just take, for example, help me out here. Paul is known as the apostle to who? Where is he taking the gospel? Where do we find in in Romans chapter 15, he says he's taking the gospel to Spain. Who is in Spain? Gentiles. We also have evidence that within the church there in Rome, that the Gentile population in the church was growing and the Jewish population was probably shrinking some. And so there was a temptation of the Gentiles to kind of run over the top of the Jewish brethren within the church. And so I think Paul in this letter goes to very 
careful links to, to, to validify his love for the Jewish people. He's also, if we look at it from a, uh, if, if we looked at it, if we were Jewish in reading this letter when it was written, non-believing Jew, what do you think you'd come away with? Paul is coming right after you, right? In the very beginning of the book of Romans, who does Paul say is under sin? The pagan? Yep. And who else? The Jew. In chapter 3 of this book, of this letter, Paul says that your ethnicity and your religious practices have no salvific value. That if that's what you are leaning on for your salvation, that you're without Christ and that you are outside of the promises of glory. So Paul is going right after, right after these Jewish practices. But what you see all throughout the book of Romans as well is, is Paul does things like this. He says, well, what advantage is there to being an ethnic Jew? And he says, well, there's many. He also says in Romans 1.16 and again in Romans 2, 9-10 that the gospel is for who? The Jew first and then the Gentile. Listen to this in Romans chapter 15. This is interesting. In Romans 15, 24-33. Notice here what Paul is doing and what he's saying. He says, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped uh, on my way, uh, whereby you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now, notice Paul is pointing this out to his readers. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. So I'm going to Jerusalem to serve the saints. For Macedonia and Archaea have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, pleased to do so and they're indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they're indebted to minister to them also in their material things. I think Paul goes through great links throughout this letter to talk about his love for the Jewish people. And this part of this, part of the reason for Paul going here at this time is that. But there is a much bigger thing at stake. So I do think Paul has a burden personally, but here's the bigger point. Here's the point that you need to get, and here's the main point. What is most important, the reason that the Jewish people are most important to Paul is because of their relationship with God. And when we read these verses, I think sometimes we miss it. And I want, I want to show you here in the text how I get this. Notice Paul jumps right into in chapter verse 4, who are the Israelites, and then notice what he does. Notice as he lists these things, as he lists out again these, these, these privileges, these, these things that the Israelites have or have had. And I want to walk through them for you to understand what they are, to understand what Paul is driving at. So, who are the Israelites? To whom belong the adoption as sons? And I think when Paul writes this here, he is referencing back to Israel's adoption as a nation historically, 
uh, what one of the verses that brings to mind is Exodus 4.22, where God is telling Moses to go and get his son. Collect my son. Israel is my son. God chose Israel to make them his people. And have you ever thought about this? Out of all the nations or potential peoples that were around at the time, God chose Israel. And what Paul is telling us here, his readers, is that his heart is broken. His heart is overflowing with emotions because of the rejection of these people, the Israelites, to whom belong this adoption. And he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. Notice the next thing that we see, the adoption as sons and the glory. And when we think of glory here in this passage, how did God display His glory to ethnic Israel in the Old Testament? And things should come to your mind like the Ark of the Covenant. Or Mount Sinai, when Moses goes up on the, the, the mountain and they, they, they saw the glory of God. Or, or what about as they were wandering in the desert? What did they see in the desert? It was the, the smoke, the glory. And what about the Holy of Holies? where God's glory was in the temple, God did not display His glory to any other nation during this time. This was specific to ethnic Israel. This glory, God's revelation of Himself to there was theirs. His adopted sons. And Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He keeps going. The glory and the covenants and the giving of the law. God not only gives them adoption, God not only displays His glory, but God enters into a covenant with them that He will be their people and they, He will be their God and they will be His people. And He gave them the law to ratify that covenant. And I don't know if you think of the law in this way, but here's how we need to think of the law. What was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law, the purpose of the law was an act of grace so that the people of Israel could be holy as God was holy. So that the people of Israel could become more like who God was so that the nations and everyone else would see the greatness and the goodness of God and the holiness of God. God gave His law to whom? The Israelites. And again, again, didn't stop there. He says also in these verses that he gave them the temple service and the promises. And I think that these two um, are, are two others that go together. And, and we, we know that God gave instructions to the Israelites on how to order worship. That's what temple service. That's another way we can say that. And he did it in such a way that they would be looking forward to a future promise in which God would meet their need, in which God would make a way for them to dwell with Him forever. And God gave them this style of worship, and God gave the Israelites this promise. Paul doesn't stop there. <laughs> he then says, I gave you the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I gave you the fathers, the patriarchs, to carry on the lineage of the faith, to, to carry on my purposes, to 
Be able to populate the earth with my people. I gave you those. And ultimately, this all culminates from whom these fathers would come the Messiah. Given to you. Your brother. A fellow Jew. That Paul, Paul tells us that God gave ethnic Israel the Messiah, Jesus. And notice how Paul, um, how Paul goes into this doxology here, but I think there are things that we need to learn from it. Again, whose are the fathers and from whom is Christ according to the flesh? Paul is making a distinction there according to the flesh. Notice when he talked about that they're my kinsmen according to the flesh. And so Paul is not giving up on what he sees as the Jewish and Gentile believers are, the, are now the family of God. It's part of what we will get into, 9, 10, and 11, of how this works out, ethnic Israel's place, all of that. But what you see here is that Paul is telling them that this, you have been given Jesus Christ, your brother, and notice what he says here. He wants them to know who they are rejecting. This, this brother, this Messiah, is Lord over all peoples and over all creation. And not only that, depending upon how you interpret the end of verse four, uh, verse five, and how you punctuate it, which there is much controversy, it is possible, it is possible, it is possible that it reads like this, who is over all God. At the very least, at the very least, we can see that when Paul is telling them that you have been given Jesus, he is connecting the dots of how great this is the greatest gift that you have been given. And his heart is breaking because they have rejected this Messiah and he's in deep pain, in deep sorrow that God's chosen people are rejecting their God. And what I want you to see this morning is why this is such a big problem and why this pains Paul so much and why I say this is the key to interpreting chapters 9, 10, and 11 and why it is relevant to you. What Gary and I want you to get out of the next weeks and months ahead is not just more Bible knowledge to potentially put you into a theological camp. But we also want you to see what these verses are telling us about this God we serve. And, and this tells us this morning, it tells us about Paul is launching into this because he's telling us something about the character of God that is vital to us Gentiles in the audience this morning. And I want you to follow the logic here. I want you to follow the logic. Chapters 9 through 11 is all about the trustworthiness of God. Because the major problem is if these Jewish people who were given all of these gifts are rejecting the Messiah, then the question naturally flows, should naturally flow, oh, so the word of God has failed. And in verse 6, that's why Paul goes there. It's not as if the word of God has failed. And then he launches into this 
this treatise in chapters 9 through 11. That Paul is jealous that we understand that God is trustworthy and that his promises have not failed. And you say, okay, so why should I care? And I'll tell you the reason you should care. The greatest chapter in the book of Romans, chapter 8, may be the greatest chapter in the Bible. The security that it gives us. The promise of the Holy Spirit that we enjoyed. Our adoptions as sons and daughters. Here's the point. If God is untrustworthy in His dealings with Israel, what prevents Him from being untrustworthy in His dealings with you and I? If God is untrustworthy in His promises and His covenants with Israel, then we might as well take Romans 8, cut it out of our Bible and throw it away because it's not worth the paper that it's written on. And so this is not just a parenthetical statement in the middle of the book of Romans. This is big monumental stuff that we've got to get deep down in our bones as Christians or else we will make a shipwreck out of our faith. And just so that you know how I'm connecting these dots, let's go back just for a moment to Romans 8, 28. Remember what we talked about when we were here and it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. And then we get into this for, so the ground. What is the ground of that? What makes that stand? And it says, for whom He foreknew, He predestined. He would be the firstborn among many brothers. He predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified. What can we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The promises in the book, in the chapter of Romans 8, are all rooted and grounded in God's sovereignty. And if He's not trustworthy, if He's not trustworthy, we are in trouble. Or look at Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is that grounded in? Is that grounded in your love for God? Because I don't know how your life goes. <laughs> but if you're in charge of that, then you're in trouble. Because I'm fickle. And I think you are probably too. But God keeps us. He holds us. And His character is trustworthy. And His character is true. And so Paul here, in Romans chapters 9 through 11 comes back in and, and provides this structure, makes this footing underneath our feet as we're going into Romans chapter 12, as we're going into Christian living, and He is making our footing and our standing sure. And the only way to do that is to base that on the sovereignty and the trustworthiness of God. And this is... Uh, and this is unlike anything we experience in this world. I think that's why we need it so much. We could go around the room. I could just say, hey, the topic is, um, how does this world fail you? And we could start going around the room and start naming things. 
As I was thinking about this this morning, and this is silly, I was shaving. And it's not completely unusual for me to semi-cut myself, but I cut myself on my nose. I wasn't shaving my nose. And I thought, you know, this is just like this world. I think I was actually shaving my chin at the time. Not even close. But this is just like this, this, this broken body, this distracted mind that somehow I nick my nose when I'm shaving. This world fails us. This world lets us down. Entire industries are built around um, providing you with security that are double and triple and quadruple times um, protected so that nothing can get to you. But yet we're not isolated. But here's where we have to praise God. We have to praise God. We need to praise God that His Word endures forever. His Word never fails. And He is trustworthy He is sovereign. He's good. And here's the last word that I want to add to that phrase. He is unchanging. He is unchanging. And this is what makes his promises stand. You know, one of the things we're going to see um, over the next couple weeks is that there are just some sweet, sweet things in these chapters. Um, There are things that, uh, you know, it's interesting to say it that way because there are a lot of things that people like to fight over when it comes to these chapters. But there are some sweet, sweet things in these chapters. As I've been studying one of the and I'm sure this is not this does not come from Lewis. Um, This is probably somebody else's words. I just can't think of who they are because my brain is failing me. But one of the things that we learn about God as we dig into this, these chapters is his mysterious sovereign mercy. His mysterious sovereign mercy. And I I think we need to think about this. We need to ruminate on this. We need to we need to we need to meditate on this. Tracy this morning was coming in after sharing his testimony and just as he was recounting with the kids the goodness of God in his life, he was just in emotional. Emotional over God's mysterious, sovereign mercy. Why in the world are you here? The only reason any of us are here is due to God's mysterious to us, sovereign mercy. And as we unpack, as we unpack these chapters, we'll, we'll get to see, we'll get to have a, a front row seat of that. And I want to end with this morning, end with this. Why it's vital to see God as trustworthy why it's vital to see God as trustworthy God is calling us to a life as Christians to a joyful radical type of lifestyle that puts everything on the line for him and he doesn't just call us that willy-nilly but he calls us that saying I am your God, go. So it's very important that we see him as trustworthy. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, uh, I was struck by this uh, around Easter time as we were going through this, is that uh, there was another pastor that talked about um, 
the, the passage where it says that if the resurrection is not true, we are the most to be pitied. And one of the things that he brought out of this was this. Do you live the kind of life to where if the resurrection is not true that you would be pitied? Over and over again in the Bible, God calls us to the kind of lifestyle that is otherworldly, that is risky, that is radical. But He doesn't call us out free-flowing into nothing. He calls us out on the foundation of His trustworthiness and His goodness and His sovereignty. He calls us to boldly go with the kind of love like we saw at the beginning of this chapter. So I want to end uh, just by saying two things. I want to end and ask you this morning, do you love your neighbor like this? One of the things that was interesting when, uh, as words were trickling in after Joe's passing, um, were that there were people who didn't know Joe real well that were wondering, not, not from our congregation, because it was evident as he lived, if you were around Joe, it was evident of his belief in God and his Savior, Jesus Christ. It was evident in his life, but there were people around him that would ask the question, is, is, is his security? You know, what they were asking was, was Joe a Christian? And I thought to myself, I don't want to be that kind of neighbor. Physically, and I'm laying it all on the table here, I could not tell you if any of my surrounding neighbors are believers. I don't want to be that kind of neighbor. I've got this wonderful opportunity yesterday um, as I was thinking and praying about this and feeling condemned uh, God gave me a moment of mysterious sovereign mercy in the truck as I was transporting some friends to a lacrosse tournament to where the kids who are from a home where they aren't believers started asking me to tell them stories about God they were asking for it weren't they Miles? Over, like they wanted more stories. Then they asked me, how do we get rid of sin? God's so merciful to me, you know. Um, (laughs) Will you be that kind of neighbor that's burdened? for your neighbor, and for their salvation. And the second thing that I want to end with as well, and, and I, can't, I just don't think we can get, I don't like leaving this passage, although this is a little bit out of context per se, but I, I just don't think that I can get away from this passage with also without um, maybe talking about the gospel in the context of ethnic Israel and relating it somehow to our context. What I mean by that, my dad used to have this, he probably still does have this phrase that he used to talk about a lot when he was preaching and he would call it mama and them's religion. That as he moved to the south from Illinois, 
as he would try to witness to people, one of the responses he would get when he was trying to ask them if they were a believer is he said they would start talking about mama and them. And what he meant was, is they would talk about their grandmothers, their mothers and their grandmothers Christian heritage, that I was raised in the church. And and this has held true for me uh, years and years ago when I was doing some counseling down in Dalton, one of the things that we had to ask people, the hospital would give us questions to ask, and one of the questions we would have is, do you have any religious preferences or affiliation? And a lot of times, there would be no guilt until I asked that question. And you know what they would often start talking to me about? Church attendance. Church attendance. So I just would see that as an opportunity, and I would say, well, you know, uh, the church that you say that you attend semi-regularly, or not enough, is what you're saying. I hope they don't preach that church attendance is not what saves you. Then they would go into, you know, I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to be good. It's just so hard. And I can't help, but as we're thinking about ethnic Israel, and we're thinking about the challenge that Paul had towards ethnic Israel in the book of Romans, that we can relate to this on a level of saying that we have a lot of people around us who think that they're okay because of their Christian heritage and because of their Christian practices. But there is no relationship with the Savior of the universe. And we have to be willing as brothers, as, as Christians, and I implore you as brothers and sisters, we have to be willing to be as loving as Paul and let them know That if you die in that, that you are dying outside of the promised people of God. You are dying without Christ in your life. Now, what I hope is entering in, well, I hope it's not entering your brain, but if what is entering your brain, this is how I wanted to end, your brain is, oh, Lewis, but that's scary. I would ask you, what are you scared of? God trustworthy or is he not? Is he faithful or is he not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for this word this morning. We are so thankful for these chapters, verses 9 through 11. God, it always amazes me that these chapters are skipped so many places. Because they can be difficult at times. They can be emotional at times. They rub up against uh, some of our philosophical categories at times. But God, we need your word because we need to see, we need to be reminded of your faithfulness. That your word does not and has not failed. God, as we launch into the reasons that Paul is going to tell us why that your word has not failed for ethnic Israel... God, I pray, Lord, that we would be burdened. We would be burdened over the next weeks and months to pray for these Jewish people who are hopeless without their Messiah. God, I pray that we would be burdened to think about Avi Snyder, who we've had here, who's a friend of ours uh, with Jews for Jesus, who is leading crusades all over the world of trying to turn Jewish people back to their Savior, to their Messiah. God, I pray that... Lord, that we would be in prayer over this ministry and this man and that, God, that we would pray for those around us 
that we know. And I pray that you would give us boldness to speak to Jewish people that we know about their Messiah. But God, don't let it stop there. Let us be like Paul, whose passion is not only for ethnic Israel, but is that all people may turn. And as he says, towards the end, towards the middle of these great chapters, how will they know unless someone is sent? God, help us to fulfill our job today of being a proclaimer of your gospel. God, strengthen our resolve, strengthen our knowledge that you are trustworthy and that our footing is sure. And God, I just pray that your spirit would use that to prompt us to go. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.